When the economy shut down at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, millions of people were laid off overnight. Some saw an opportunity for a new beginning. We saw the need for PPE. So the initial thought was just to help out the country. It's pretty wild. I think I just had my mindset that, you know, I can do this. There was this weird, among a lot of my colleagues, a sense of almost relief and, and reassessment. And just kind of like slowly took off where, I, you know, one week I did 24 orders, then I did 40 orders, then I did 50 orders, then I did 60 orders, and then I did 80 orders. Do I enjoy being in the cubicle? Do I want to do that forever? And this pandemic has really given me the time to think about that. Here in New York, before the COVID shutdown began, the unemployment rate was at 3.4%, a historic low. In June, it reached a staggering 20.3%. At the end of the summer, the rate was still above 16%, nearly twice the national average. And in January, it was still above 12%. The extremely slow pace of the economic recovery here has been painful for so many people. But some saw this as a chance to reinvent themselves, to launch new careers, to change direction, to be pandemic pivoters. I'm Steve Kastenbaum, and this is New York Gritty, a podcast about the resiliency of New Yorkers in times of crisis. You basically have free time in your hands and the world is telling you, you know, this is your opportunity. What are you going to do with it? My name is Ruth Lee. Uh, We're currently in Brooklyn, Gravesend, Brooklyn. Um, I actually grew up here and then moved to Staten Island in 2010, lived there for 10 years, bounced around in Manhattan, and now I'm back here and where I grew up. So we're sitting on your stoop and this is your home. How long have you been here? Um, I've been here for two years now. And in the background, we hear the elevated subway in this part of Brooklyn. The subway is above ground. The trains are really convenient here. It's the best part of New York, really. So you were living here when we first started hearing about coronavirus and the first couple of cases started appearing in New York. What was that like for you here down in this southern section of Brooklyn? People weren't really taking it seriously. Um, You know, wearing a mask, especially being a Chinese descent person living in New York or even in the United States. When my mom had told me, you know, you got to wear masks now. Um, ignore other people if they're not wearing it. Just you should wear it. And I'm like, mom, you're, you're crazy. This is, you know, who the hell is wearing masks? Excuse my language. Uh, who's wearing masks right now? I think it's only in China. It's not going to be here. Um, but, you know, all the, the Asian community was taking it seriously and um, people were already starting to buy masks. People were buying loads of rice because they had already predicted that all the shops are going to close potentially. But, you know, being an Asian person wearing a mask when everyone else wasn't, I got all these ugly looks in the subway. That was hard. And I got it even at my workplace. Yeah. Really? And in this neighborhood, there's a very large uh, Asian population, a very large Chinese population here. And you personally felt some of that backlash that we were reporting on against the Asian community here in New York. Yeah, um, it was kind of scary because um, forget about the subway. Even at work, I had the ugliest glare. I only wore it once at work. I uh, This man just glared at me. And I, I've been sitting next to him for a whole year. He was just one aisle over and uh, I couldn't believe 
that wearing something could make someone look at you different. Uh, I don't I don't know where this mindset comes from. Actually, when we heard about this coronavirus, um, I was about to get married in India. At the end of um, mid-February, went to India, got married, came back, was gonna go to work. I got the flu. Oh boy. I got really scared because I really thought it was a coronavirus. And luckily we have urgent care here and they told me, oh no, it's the flu. Thank God you're, you're okay. And I'm like, oh, good, goodness, great. I'm so happy I have the flu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been more thankful for having the flu. It could have been a lot worse. So I came back and I was going to go to work. I didn't. I ended up staying home. I was still sick, so I took a sick day, sick week, actually. Um, I already told my boss and she said, OK, stay at home, rest, do whatever you have to do. And then lockdown. So what were you doing for work at the time? I was working for an apparel company as an assistant buyer. I loved that job. Workplace, toxic, but I loved it. I loved it. Um, it was like a it was a community filled with love within your peers, but also f words flew around cubicles. Um, <laughs> it's very Brooklyn. But the fact that they didn't tell me or even bother to call me to let me know that I've been let go, I thought it was a. I thought it was um, irresponsible. The way I found out that I was let go was through my coworkers. They said, hey, uh, did you get let go? Cause I did. Um, I'm like, wait, when? And I was still sick at the time cause I had the flu and it was just crazy. How, how, how can you, how can HR not even email people? How do you not do that? So you're out of work and everybody around you is experiencing the same thing. Then you sort of settle into a routine, right? Because there's no prospect of getting a job. You know, weeks, months are going by, I presume, as you're sitting at home thinking, what am I going to do, right? Is that, is that pretty much what happened? That was. But when I was in India, um, I had gone to this restaurant for Valentine's Day. It was close to my wedding day. I might as well, you know, explore India and try the most amazing food that they have to offer. They had this restaurant called Indian Accent. We actually have a location here in New York. Okay. Uh, but I went to their location in Delhi, and I had the most amazing food there. Uh-huh. Every dish was superb. And on our way home, I said, you know what? When I go back home, I'm going to make an ice cream company. And then all the flavors are going to be inspired by everything I just ate at Indian Accent. And he thought I was crazy. And I actually designed the logo, you know, on my phone. I just like quickly drew it out. These are the colors. These are the flavors. That's it. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm so proud of this idea. I'm going to tell my, my in-laws about this. Everyone thought I was crazy. They're like, <laughs> they really thought I was crazy. I, I'm like... I know this sounds crazy, but I'm I'm 100% sure everyone's gonna love it in the U.S. They're gonna love it because it doesn't exist. It's um you know it, it's it's the most brilliant idea I've ever had, and that lockdown lost my job, and I thought whoa let's revisit that idea. Okay, a few things I have to ask you first: Had you ever made ice cream before? <laughs> no, I've only I've only. You've got to be kidding me! You never so you had this idea. And you never once made ice cream before. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know why ice cream, but that was the first thing that came to my mind. So what was the learning curve like? <laughs> um, 
I'm still learning. I mean, everyone had ample time in their hands. What are you going to do in that situation? Um, so I, I, you know, there's no better time, you know, when, when the world stops time for you, it's not going to happen again. No, like that's a once in a few generations where you experience this, you know, a global pandemic. Wow. So why not? I have nothing to lose. I have no job. I have no one to answer to I, except myself. Uh, do what no one has ever allowed me to do, right? Is the business growing? Have you been increasing your customer base now? Um, yes, and I am very thrilled about it. Um, February was my best month, um, but those months in between February and July were very hard. When you were sitting at your desk in the apparel company pre-pandemic, did you ever think that, hey, I, I could be a startup and do something totally different? Absolutely not. For you, there was a major silver lining to this period, to this really difficult period in, in an unprecedented difficulty that we're facing here in New York. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to say that this pandemic is a blessing, but for me it was. Uh, it helped me get out and really um, focus on who do I want to be as a person? Um, am I a slave forever, uh, stuck in this cubicle? Do I enjoy being in the cubicle? For some, some people do. I know I didn't. Do I want to do that forever? And this pandemic has really given me the time to think about that. Myself and all my employees are very happy to be able to contribute to the country to produce these PPE garments. But it also has been able to be, I've been able to keep all my employees busy and working, which is something our, which is our primary concern before making money because we don't always make money when we keep them working. My name is Phil Franzos. I'm the owner of Accurate Knitting and we're located in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and we've been here in the Navy Yard for 15 years and we are apparel manufacturers. What was your company doing before the pandemic began? Since 1994, we were manufacturers of sweaters, ladies' sweaters, men's sweaters, and kids' sweaters. And we were doing that until March 14th of 2020. What happened on that day? Because that's right around when the city shut down from end to end. On March 14, 2020, uh, we actually got a call from some major retailers that all the orders that we had prepared already were canceled. All orders that were not prepared are also canceled. And we were basically stuck with a lot of goods and had to shut down that day. How many employees did you have at the time? At that particular time, we had 48 people. What did that do to you? What did it do to your employees to suddenly have everything shut down and all of your orders canceled, piles of sweaters, I imagine, everywhere? Yeah, well, let's back up for a minute. All my employees are hardworking immigrants. Out of the 48, we pr probably have 40 or 42 that are women who are very, very devoted and have been with me for almost 18 years. And I had to get them together and explain to them what happened. And I had to let them go. It's like family, I imagine. How hard was that on you? It was very difficult. It was a sad moment. 
Um, I felt very bad for them because I know that they work from paycheck to paycheck. Uh -huh. Normally, if I have a slow season, I give them a two months notice, uh -huh. letting them know that I foresee a slow season, they should prepare themselves. This came out of left field uh -huh. and it was not an easy thing, not for me, not for them. So what did you wind up doing? What did you? Do? What were you thinking? So I first I was thinking just to stay healthy, right. okay. And once we grouped together, me and my, and my associates, we we saw the need for PPE. Mm -hmm. So the initial thought was just to help out the country, mm -hmm. and then it became a business. It was quite easy for us to transition and to pivot into PPE because we wore garment manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So the first product that we made was an isolation gun. Mm -hmm. And we made some samples. And initially I was going to work with the city and the state. Mm -hmm. But it, then it turned out that some nursing homes approached us and we decided to work, to work directly with nursing homes and local hospitals. So you pivoted pretty quickly to making masks and gowns at a time when the supply chain was completely interrupted. Yeah, that, that was a big problem, but when I was talking about um, our employees, when I called them up and said, I'm working on a new project, and I'd like to know if you, you'd come back, 90% mm -hmm. of the people were here the following week. They all came back, except for the ones who had to deal with COVID and they were not comfortable, which I understood very clearly. Mm -hmm. And we just put in very strict COVID guidelines as to, op to operate the business. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that, thank God, that in a year's time, none of my employees got sick working. So I was actually very worried for myself. You know, you know, should I be here? Should I not be here? Yeah. But we just did what we had to do. We wore masks, we wore shields, yeah. and sanitizers, and thermometers, and, and it turned out that it worked. How easy was it for you, or not easy, to pivot to making masks and gowns? Actually, it was not that difficult because we were manufacturers of apparel garments. Mm -hmm. So the, the manufacturing process of it in itself was not something that we had to work very hard on. First, we started with gowns. And then it turned out that FEMA was looking to produce 20 million masks. Mm -hmm. We were able to produce several million masks in a period of two months. What has this meant to you to go from being completely shut down, not knowing if your business was going to survive, to suddenly making millions of masks and gowns that were sorely needed? I, I mean, in a way, myself and all my employees are very happy to be able to contribute to the country to produce these PPE garments, but it also has been able to be, I've been able to keep all my employees busy and working, which is something, our, which is our primary concern before making money, mm -hmm. because we don't always make money when we keep them working. So PPE not only was a temporary bridge for you, it's actually sustaining you into the future. It should keep us going at least for 12 to 24 months more. That means a lot to those people at the sewing machines out. It, it, it is a life-saving for, for them. I mean, they, they, they're so devoted, and I know them personally for 15 or 18 years, mm -hmm. that I'm so happy. One of the things that I'm happy for once we get the contract is to be able to walk over to my employees and to tell them, don't worry, you have work for the next 12 to 24 months. A huge load off yeah. their shoulders. Right. Tremendous. Yeah. Are you a native New Yorker? Yes, I was born right near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So you've seen New Yorkers' resilience and perseverance firsthand here in the Navy Yard. 
I have, and I, and I think we can do it again. I think we can do it again. It's just a matter of things falling into place. And, and I think the primary thing is waiting for everybody to be vaccinated. I think once everybody is vaccinated, the comfort of the individual to go out to a store will be there. And once that happens, we'll be back into what we were. I think we will get back. It's, I think it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of time. I don't think it's going to happen in a snap of the fingers, and I don't think it's going to happen in a year. Mm. But I think, I think it will happen. It's just a matter of being patient and waiting and surviving it. My name is Kyla Ernstelper. I am an aerialist and a producer. And tell the listeners where we are now. Describe the space we're in. Uh, so right now we're at City Point. Um, we're inside Brooklyn Studios, uh, where I've been running a residency for furloughed professional circus performers since January. A lot of people um, aren't aware of us, but we've been a major part of the New York entertainment industry for years and years, um, decades actually. Prior to the pandemic, for example, I was um, the one of the lead performers in an immersive dinner theater show in the Times Square Edition Hotel. After that show, I would either stick around and perform in the nightclub there, or I would go downtown and perform at the Slipper Room or the Box or any number of other nightclubs. I was also doing uh, your kids bar mitzvahs and weddings and the holiday party that you went to for your company. So we've been a part of the New York ecosystem for a very long time. Being an aerialist encompasses a lot of different things. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so aerial, uh, when you talk about aerial, we're talking about silks, uh, we're talking about rope, trapeze, and we have multiple kinds of trapeze. We've got static trapeze, we've got flying trapeze. That's not something that we do here. That takes up a huge amount of space and nets and all of that. Um, and then we have something called dance trapeze. Um, uh, we have lira, we have straps on the ground, we have sear wheel, we have contortionists, we have hand balancing, we have juggling. The silks, the ropes, they're affixed to the I-beams at the top of the ceiling here. and. It's just an incredible performance to watch, to see how you're able to seemingly defy gravity sometimes, the way you affix your body to it as you're expressing your art form. It's almost like dancing off the ground in a way. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so I started my career as a ballet dancer here in New York. Uh, and yeah, so my approach to Ariel is very much movement focused. There, You can take a very gymnastics kind of trick approach to it. We're really interested in uh, having the skill set um, and the ability to do tricks, but to use those tricks in an artistic way to tell a story, maybe it's an abstract story, to create a character, to create, really to transport people. So it is, circus is theater. So the opportunity though to earn a living as an aerialist was already stressed before the pandemic and, and then this happened and it disappeared, but you've managed to pivot and we find you in this space, as you called it, a residency. So how did that evolve? What was your change? I was able to kind of zoom out and, and realize that we were in this for the whole winter and our spaces were gone. And so I needed to do something. Otherwise I really was gonna like, not just like lose my own mind to depression, but I was watching my peers fall into deeper and deeper depression. And it, you know, it was just kind of this constant, like 
checking in via text or Zoom calls or you know phone calls, just and people were not okay. So I started reaching out to spaces, just saying like, hey, I represent the Furwood Circus Performers of New York. <laughs> we need a space just so that we can at least continue to create work, you know, even if we can't perform it and have like stay in shape and, and be ready to go back to work the moment that we're allowed to. What was the reaction on the other end of the phone? I'm sure that that's not a call that they're accustomed to getting. We're out of work circus performers and we need a space. <laughs> Actually, Erica from City Point called me pretty much right away and said, I, I think that this could be a really good fit. People are often amazed when they walk by and suddenly see aerialists doing death-defying moves in the silk, in the ropes, and, and you're just practicing your craft. It, it's not a live performance. You're, you're here in residency, as you say. Yeah, exactly. We're working. Um, you know, we're not getting paid, but this is, you know, we, we can't just go on and perform. Like, it, to get to that performance and to maintain that performance, it takes hours and hours of training. Mm -hmm. But yeah, our training time is our work. So it kind of looks like we're just like playing around, but this is our, this is our work, right? right? Is like refining the skills. And like you said, this is death defining. This has been so huge, um, not only because it's giving us a space and a return to our community, but the, the, the really incredible thing is this is the first time in New York that we as professionals have had a space where we can actually just focus on refining our craft when you're just surrounded by other professionals who are also creating and, and training and developing, the energy is so different. Oh. And that energy has been really feeding all of us. Um, there's, there's some really exciting new works that have been created in this space that are being incubated in this space mm -hmm. that I don't think would have happened even in the before times. So for everyone to kind of be a collective, um, it also has brought up collaborations and um, some really exciting perspective projects for um, when New York reopens, which reopening is happening now. I'm from Brooklyn, uh -huh. lived here my whole life. I'm a fellow Brooklynite, native, native Brooklynite, third generation. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, there's not a lot of us left here in the borough, are there? There are not. Yeah, it's always like this weird thing yeah. when you find someone that's also grown up here. People are always amazed. They're like, wait, you're from Brooklyn? Yeah, because everyone moves here and flocks here. But yeah, we do exist. My name is Alex LaRosa. I was a fashion designer for 15 years until I was laid off in the pandemic. And then I started my own in-home bakery where I design cakes and I specialize in all the intricate details and really making the cakes stand out with my creative twist. Tell me about your career before the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I was a fashion designer. I went to FIT where I studied and I specialize in intimate apparel. So all I've designed is bras and panties and sleepwear. So very specialized. I had a great freelance job but obviously with the pandemic and stores closing and the economy not being what it was, they had to make major layoffs and freelance is always the first to go. So I obviously stopped working then and became a full-time stay-at-home mom to my toddler, which is a great opportunity to spend more time with him, but also I still needed something creative, something that you know, really was true to my heart that made me happy so then I just started baking for friends' birthdays 
one thing led to the next and then suddenly I was on Instagram and I'm selling out like a month in advance my cakes and cupcakes all over Park Slope. What did that do to you when they told you you were being laid off? You know, at first I kind of thought, I mean, I knew it was permanent, but I thought there was a chance of coming back. I didn't realize how long the pandemic would go on as many of us, probably none of us did. I mean, now we're a year into it. So I was thinking they would hire me back in like a month when stores reopen. But as the pandemic continued, I realized that really wasn't going to happen. So I really had to figure out what I wanted to do and start something creative for myself. You're creative, baking cakes, doing really good cakes. That that involves a lot of creativity. I mean, we've all seen gorgeous cakes at weddings and and parties and, and really intricate cakes for children's birthdays and it runs the gamut, what you can do with that. Had you baked before? That's that's the first question that comes to mind. So the funny thing is I'd never baked a layer cake until September. So no, I had never made it before. My mom is an avid baker, so growing up there would be a different cake on the table every two days. And she had a baking blog, so she baked a ton. I was always around it, but I never had an interest in it. Um, but now I realized, you know, how can I kind of merge fashion and the creativity of designing something? And I've always had a passion for food. How can I merge the two? So it seemed like decorating cakes, which is my favorite part, and designing them just seemed like a natural fit. I really just read a bunch of cookbooks, uh-huh. a lot of research on Instagram, some Pinterest, and a ton of YouTube videos. And I really taught myself completely self-taught yeah completely self-taught I found some people on Instagram you know big bakers who I really followed and I started private messaging them and they would respond to me and tell me things that they knew and if I needed you know any advice I found a lot of people through Instagram that were really willing to help a newbie which was amazing I just find this incredible because I looked at your pictures on your Instagram feed and it looks like this is a talent that you've been perfecting for years. I mean, your cakes are incredibly intricate and beautiful works of art. And you just started this essentially a few months ago. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I think I just had my mindset that, you know, I can do this. Why can't I do a buttercream rose? Why can't I do a meringue swirl lollipop? Of course, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I just figured, of course I can do it. And I just set my mind to it. Of course, I've had fails. Uh Um, But then I learn from my mistakes a lot. When there is a failure, I learn so much from it. And I take lots of notes. And then I'm able to just do better the next time. The pandemic has been so disruptive to so many people. So many livelihoods literally disappeared overnight. And many of those folks still haven't recovered. For you, this was a new beginning. It was a new beginning and what actually really helped pivot all of this is I became part of a group on Instagram. There's maybe 30 of us now called the Makers of Brooklyn. We just have an Instagram chat. We actually just got the name and it's all these people in Brooklyn that are doing the same thing as me. Not necessarily cakes, but there's someone doing pizza. There's someone doing sandwiches, someone making macarons, someone making jam. There's a whole group of us and we all help and really support one another. And it's been amazing i found all these new friends they refer me to their friends we do collaborations um where like the sandwich shop will sell my cupcakes with their sandwiches or this guy chef kava that sells meals on his stoop he'll sell my cupcakes with his meals on his stoop so it's been really amazing 
there's so many people that I've met since the pandemic started, which is great. Like even like I met some new neighbors on this block that I didn't know before. And you know, we just all came together, which is great. You know, it's there's a real sense of community here, which I really like. And just being able to feed people and different people every week and they get to try something different, which I think is really great. Hey, I'm Scott Cavagnaro, Chef Cava, and we are sitting on my stoop in Park Slope on Union Street. So, Scott, what were you doing before the coronavirus pandemic hit New York? So prior to uh, COVID, I um, was typically just doing private catering, uh, large events, you know, weddings, cocktail parties, uh, tasting dinners, um, couple of pop-ups, but primarily my main source of income came from larger events, like 150, you know, plus people, uh, and they were all in dining, uh, indoor events. So business was good before the pandemic? Yeah. So prior, I mean, I was very busy. I was booking events 16 to 24 months out, um, you know, doing a lot of tastings and, you know, getting the events booked was great because, you know, I just kind of knew where I was going to be in like a year, you know, and then I would be able to do like do other kind of passion projects that I was into, like smaller events, like tasting events and, you know, doing freelance work for other caterers or chef friends, you know, it's just kind of just kind of spread myself out, you know, in the meantime, like before, you know, I had like a larger event coming. So you did that last party and then the orders came down from our leaders in New York State everything's got to stop. Everything came to a standstill. And over time, it became clear that large gatherings were not going to come back for a while. What did that do to you? So, for, you know, like way when it all came down, I was like, this is just going to blow over in like a month. You know, I had some events booked in April and May and I was like, you know, it just some, I, I figured it'd just be a month and we'll be back at it, right? And then like, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just like make some focaccia and just give some focaccia away. So I was like just making some breads. Like like a lot of people were doing just like baking breads. It was like hard to find flour and things like that. So. I remember that. I remember going on the hunt for yeast because everybody suddenly started baking for some reason. I don't know if it gave us comfort or what, but everybody was baking. Yeah, so like, you know, I, I did some focaccias, gave it away. And then, you know, like a week later, you know, emails started coming in. Like, oh, we're thinking about postponing, maybe to the fall. You know, we might want to even push it back to 2021. So, you know, I was thinking, I was like, wow, so if, if these events are getting pushed back that I have in April and May, maybe this is going to be a little longer than, than I thought it would be. So, you know, my wife, Brianna, actually kind of pushed me into to maybe just, like, stay creative and just try, try to stay sharp with food and cooking. So I was like, you know, I'll just buy a case of chicken, you know, and I like emailed some past clients was like, hey, like I'm doing like this meal, like meal delivery, you know, but like we're not delivering, but it's going to be prepped and ready to go. All you got to do is pick it up and I'll provide you heating instructions. So bought a case of chickens, sold out in the first week, but I only did, you know, I did the first week I did 24 orders. Um, so you felt like you needed to keep cooking. And to keep your skills up and you wanted to be creative and inventive or, or, or explore new things while you had this opportunity? So my first thought was like, hey, like, let me just cook a couple of things that I've done for events in the past that I know it'll work. And then I was like, you know, I still want to stay sharp and maybe I could work on some projects that I think that could work for larger events when I go back to work and I could just kind of test it on, you know, on people in the community. 
and just kind of like slowly took off where I, I would, did, you know, one week I did 24 orders, then I did 40 orders, then I did 50 orders, then I did 60 orders, and then I did 80 orders. Yeah, and, and now I'm up to, you know, 130 a week. And it's just kind of, it's great, you know, like just kind of being able to feed the community and just kind of letting people know, like, that I'm around and, you know, that you could give, like, restaurant quality food to take home and heat up yourself as opposed to going to a restaurant and eating there you know especially like during this time like all the restaurants were shut down and you know people were doing takeout but you know sometimes you know the food that i was doing was like you heat it up yourself but you played it yourself and there's instructions so it's kind of like you are cooking a little bit but you're just reheating in a way you know so it grew into a business with how many orders you're doing now so now i'm doing upwards i mean about 130 a week i just pretty much do what i think i can handle and still put out a good product um, but yeah, I've been selling out every week for a year. So, I mean, people are into it, which is great. You know, I, I first started using Instagram, um, right when, I mean, I was using Instagram prior to the pandemic, but I didn't really need to use it because I was getting a lot of events through referrals and, you know, being a preferred vendor at event spaces. But, you know, as soon as COVID happened, like that all dried up, you know, I had an Instagram account, but I didn't really use it so much. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like started focusing on social media. You have to promote yourself. Yeah. If, you're, if you're doing this on your own, if you've pivoted and this is how you're going to support yourself during this period, you got to get the word out. I mean, Instagram is just like, it's just like you have to be on that constantly, you know? Like it's amazing like how much like word went out like using this Instagram. On pickup days... It's pick up any time between 4.30 and 6.30. So everything's all boxed out, ready to go. We, you know, we have a spreadsheet with everyone's names on it. We have like a little letter board that has like today's menu. But my food and the dessert and the cocktails is upwards of like 175 to 200 different orders a week. I imagine it's hard not to feel optimistic about the future uh, when, when you're doing well, when this turned into something positive for you. But... I'm also sure you're you're very well aware of the suffering that's going on around yeah. here. So so what's your outlook for the the future of the city? I mean, the city's coming back. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, New York City's dead. New York City's not dead. You know, people are out. People are doing things. I mean, yes, the restaurant industry has suffered, and you know, a lot of small businesses aren't going to come back. You know, it's it's unfortunate, but you know, this is the greatest city in the world, right? You know, it's going to come back. You know, it's just going to take a little longer. We're just being careful. Some regions of the country were recovering at a faster pace than New York. It wasn't clear when this city would get back to pre-pandemic employment levels, if at all. New York City is constantly reinventing itself, though. And as the landscape here changes over time, so do the people who keep New York's magic alive in dark times. To hear those stories, follow New York Gritty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Check out the website for more on the city's recovery from the pandemic, nygritty.com, and send me an email if you have a story about how you're getting by during this tough time, steve at nygritty.com. Follow New York Gritty on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for details on upcoming episodes and more information about the impact of the pandemic here. I'm Steve Kastenbaum. Thanks for listening.